I have uh, discussed with a, a few people this week, just the, the fact that the last week or two have been especially laden with bad news, laden with uh, news of illness, news of suffering, news of death. Twice this week I was bedside with people who are face-to-face with the very end of their lives. And um, sometimes this can, it can shake you a little bit. Not just a pastor, but it can shake you. And the one thing I'm thankful for is that in those moments when I am tempted to think, man, I need to say the right things. When I'm tempted to think that I'm supposed to give something that I can't give, I'm reminded of the sufficiency of God's word. And even, even, even as we discussed this morning before, before the service, thinking upon the truths of God's word for those that are growing older. The comfort therein, the glory that the word talks about belongs to God alone. So even as our bodies are breaking down, even as we, as Paul says, were given over to death, it is all to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 2 Corinthians 4. But what we have in God's word is we can't, we can't describe with words how much the word of God means to us. And I would say we can't, even, we can't even plumb the depths of what it actually means to us and for us. We're in Jeremiah chapter 36 today, and this is another expression of the importance of God's word ultimately how the word endures. The word endures. Uh, some commentators have said that this is the most important chapter in the entire book of Jeremiah. I don't know about that, but uh, and I'm probably not going to do it justice, but today chapter 36 is going to show us more of the work that God's word does. More of what it means for us. So to review, we're in this series in Jeremiah, a righteous remnant. God is preserving a people. Uh, He's ultimately sending his people into exile to purify them, and he preserves them through the exile, uh, which is to come uh, as as far as where we are in the book. And then he he promises to restore them to the land that they once inhabited, to the land of promise. Now today... We're rewinding a bit more. I wasn't very clear last week when I discussed the time frame. The Rechabites, as we talked about from chapter 35, this actually happened several years before uh, chapter 34. But they are put next to each other as a comparison, which we did talk about that. So we're looking at roughly uh, 600 B.C., so 14 years before the official fall of Jerusalem. And so that was the Rechabites. Now, this chapter 36 is just a few years before that. So probably 604-ish B.C. So we're actually backing up in time, and we have a different king in, during, those, during those days. is King Jehoiakim. And so what we encounter today is the word of God 
being proclaimed multiple times on the same day, ultimately to have the king of God's people reject it outright. This is a wonderful, wonderful account. On these days, the king and the officials called a fast because of the various struggles that they were facing. They called a fast, and the Lord took advantage of this in sending Jeremiah and Baruch, the scribe, to proclaim the word. So join me in chapter 36. We're going to read the first few verses to start, and then we'll read as we go. Verses 1 through 3, hear the word of the Lord. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Let's pray once more. Father, help us. As we confess, apart from the work of the Spirit, we cannot sufficiently understand your word. But there is rich truth to glean, ultimately showing us the majesty of Jesus Christ. So show us your Son. Show us your glory in him today, we pray in his name. Amen. The word endures. The word endures. Uh, there's a, a part of my introduction every time I preach that I have in my notes called relevance. And, you know, I was like, what in the world could I say to tell people that the word of God is relevant to them? We live in a day where uh, relevance is almost like something to be sought after by preachers. And how can you look at the word of God as we have looked at it throughout Jeremiah? How can you look at the word of God and come to the conclusion that this is not relevant to me? It has shown us so much about who God is, about what he intends to do, his promises. It's shown us so much about ourselves, right? Our sinful nature, our waywardness, our faithlessness along the way. So we've, we've pulled obscure, I'll be honest with you, obscure passages out of Jeremiah as we walk through it. Passages, maybe, possibly, that some of you, if you've read it, you never even really thought about what it meant for your lives. We have pulled these passages out of Jeremiah, and we can see clearly that they meet us right where we are. And this is the beauty of God's living word. So the theme this morning, the word of the Lord endures forever. Such a simple theme today. The word of the Lord endures forever. And as we walk through this narrative, I want to give you some of the ways, I don't know if that's a good word, but some of the ways it endures. The word endures, first off, through God's faithful servants, through God's faithful servants. Join me in verse four. It says, then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. Jeremiah ordered Baruch, saying, I am banned from going in the house of the Lord, so you are to go. And on a day of fasting, in the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, 
you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way for great is the anger and the wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. And Baruch the son of Neriah did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about reading from the scroll the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. The word endures through God's faithful servants. And so we have the situation, Jeremiah is banned. He sends Baruch his scribe. So notice here, he's going to do whatever it takes to get the word where it needs to go, to obey God. I want to show you a couple of things here. Their source of bold faithfulness. I think you may have noticed uh, there's there's very much similarity between verse 3 and verse 7. Jeremiah's expectant hope, as we read in verse 7, he owns it for himself. His expectant hope lines up directly with God's. So I would tell you, we need to know God's heart. Like Jeremiah knew God's heart. He shares the heart of God in the matter. And these are not the first verses that say this. Ten chapters ago, 26 and verse 3, it may be that they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil way that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do them because their deeds are evil. And then you get verse 3 essentially says the same thing. Uh, that they may, they, they may hear all the disaster I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. And then we see verse 7. These are the words of Jeremiah. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way, for great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. He knows God's heart. He shares God's heart. This reminds us of one of the wonderful characteristics of the entire book of Jeremiah. Sometimes we can't distinguish between God's words and Jeremiah's words. He is so much wrapped in the message. He's he's captivated by the message that he preaches on behalf of God that it overtakes him. It became a part of who he was. And ultimately, it led to his greatest joy and at the same time, much of his greatest misery. He was able to look upon the faces of those to whom he preached and he maintained the expectation that God was going to do something in their heart. That God was going to do a miraculous saving work. Get this, he's been preaching for years, probably well over 20, 25 years, 20 years. He's not seeing any repentance. He's not seeing people respond. And yet, at this, the opportunity to speak to the king about the word of God, he fully expects that they will respond in repentance. Do you have that expectation that's birthed from the heart of God? The Holy Spirit brings this question to mind often for me. 
Usually it's in the middle of sharing the gospel with somebody. Usually uh, it's in the middle of trying to counsel in a really difficult situation, hoping that, that actions will change, that people will hear the word of God and do what it intends for them to do. But the question comes, and it's like, as I am talking about the wonderful truths of God's word, as I am talking about the hope of the gospel, the question comes, as I'm talking, do you expect God's work out of these words that you're saying, Matt? As sure as I stand here this morning, the same question runs through my mind. It's not, are they going to like this sermon? What garbage is that question? The question is, Matt, do you believe that the word of God will do its work among God's people? Listener, do you expect that? Not for somebody else. (laughs) We always love to see it when it's somebody else. But do you expect that God's word is being preached to you today because God intends to change you and transform you? You know, the the constant temptation to think about what would make listeners hear, listen, as we described last week, better. What would get through? You know, we could go back to the question. What would make it relevant? I sent out a link to a, a podcast to some of y'all this week. Maybe, maybe those of you that received it, maybe a couple of you listened to it. I don't know. Maybe none of you. There was something that was brought up in this podcast about uh, celebrity preachers in our day and how they, they use every opportunity to build a brand. There's actually an Instagram account out there called Preachers and Sneakers. Preachers and sneakers. And so this guy built this whole account basically because he saw a celebrity preacher on a screen one day and he noticed that the shoes he was wearing are worth about $1,000. So the preacher's wearing a $1,000 pair of shoes. And so he said, I began to just look and and I saw all these well-known preachers and they they had a brand built. They shopped at certain stores because they wanted to wear certain clothes and present themselves in a certain way so as to be relevant. And so people come not for the word oftentimes, they come for the brand. They seek to be influencers, which is a popular word in our day in social media. They seek to be influencers and then sort of tack on some Bible along the way. Man, the same questions, the same temptations are placed before every preacher of God's word every single week. Even this week, I'm wrestling with questions like, man, how can I develop my own like uh, style? Now, I've been refreshed by those who have given great encouragement regarding Kyle's growth, Pastor Kyle's growth in preaching. And 
uh, I told, I responded to them one day. I've always been told you got to preach 500 sermons before you know who you are as a preacher. I think there's some truth to that. But you know, ultimately, it's not about me figuring out who I am. It's about faithfulness to God's word. So I don't need to come up with some sort of presentation of who I am so that you will like Jesus or church, that you will hear the word of God. That can only truly happen by the spirit. And so we are so tempted to manufacture something that is not, it is not from God. And so maybe we could recall the opening words I said about people falling out with the desire to hear God's word faithfully preached. Oh my goodness. I didn't intend to say all that. No God's heart. <laughs> know God's heart. And then secondly, know our role. Know our role. Jeremiah couldn't get in to preach, so he sends Baruch. So I love the fact that Jeremiah wasn't going to be silenced. Any of us, maybe a lot of us, I think there's some of me in here. Well, God, I'm, I'm barred from going in there, so I just can't do what you asked me to do. I don't know if I can trust Baruch to communicate the way that I communicate, right? He's barred from the temple area, so it would be easy for him to excuse himself from the task of delivering God's word. And it's not just the job of the preacher, folks. You know you are being equipped, Ephesians 4, for the work of the ministry. I think of the Apostle Paul who, though in prison, found a way to make the gospel known to the, as Philippians says, whole Praetorian guard. You remember we studied Philippians and that would amount to 9,000 soldiers hearing the gospel while Paul was in prison. It wasn't, oh God, I can't do my ministry because I'm in prison. No, he found a way. There's a soldier, I'm going to preach to him. And the word got around and the gospel got around through this work. Jeremiah knows his role is to get the word into the hearing of the people, and thankfully his scribe Baruch can get in. And he proved to be a faithful servant himself when he owned his part in the writing of the scroll. The hope here is that the king and the officials and the people will hear God's word and lead the nation to repent and be restored. Now there's some some even broader application here. Bregman writes, the word of God is intended precisely to be heard in public spaces, to impinge on public policy, and to provoke public transformation. Such hearing, impingement, and provocation require a quite human act. And what is that act? According to the providence and good pleasure of God, it is preaching speaking the word of God. Do you believe the word of God is needed in the workplace? Do you believe the word of God is needed in the schoolhouse? Do you believe the word of God is needed in the courtroom and not just as a prop? Do you believe the word of God is needed in business practices? You know, I rejoice this week because, for example... I listened to a dear brother that I'm in school with currently. 
He was standing before the Orange County School Board. This is L.A., California School Board. And he quoted scripture and built a persuasive case that may impact future curriculum choices in Los Angeles. This is an example of the way the word of God must be spoken so as to accomplish God's purposes, which is where we go next. Number two. The word endures to complete God's work. Verses 9 through 19. 9 through 19. In the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the ninth month. Do you see how specific this all is? All the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. Then in the hearing of all the people, Baruch read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll. And in the house of the Lord, in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was in the upper court, at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. When Micaiah, son of Gemariah, son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll, he went down to the king's house, to the secretary's chambers. And all the officials were sitting there. Elashama, the secretary, Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan, the son of Akbor, Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, and all the officials. And Micaiah told them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the scroll in the hearing of the people. Then all the officials sent Jehudai, the son of Nathaniah, son of Shelemiah, son of Cushi, to say to Baruch, take in your hand the scroll that you read in the hearing of the people and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them. And they said to him, sit down and read it. So Baruch read it to them. And when they heard all the words, they turned to one another in fear. And they said to Baruch, we must report all these words to the king. Then they asked Baruch, tell us, please, how did you write these words? Was it at his dictation? Baruch answered them, he dictated all these words to me while I wrote them with ink on the scroll. Then the officials said to Baruch, go and hide, you and Jeremiah, let no one know where you are. The word endures to complete God's work. You notice here that there are uh, two readings that are taking place. The first uh, reading is before the large crowd that they had called a fast. So everybody that had come heard, uh, had come to this, heard the word of Jeremiah from this scroll. The second reading takes place in a smaller group of princes or officials. And I think there's a couple of things that we can draw from this. First off, the word of God will not be ignored. It will not be ignored. The content of God's word is so bold in its claims that it cannot be ignored. Once the first reading is complete, the officials that hear decide, hey, hey, we need to take a closer look at this because if it's legitimate, then the king uh, probably needs to know this. And so it leads to this second reading. And they hear the serious nature of the content and they discern whether it's legit enough to take it to the king. And verse 16 tells us how the word did its work in them. It says, when they heard all the words... They turn to one another in fear. 
You know that feeling like something is happening here and so you're looking at somebody else to confirm that they just heard what you heard or they just saw what you saw. It is literally they hear the words and they turn and look at one another and they see the fear on one another's faces. And this is a work of God. This record indicates that the officials were moved by the content of the scroll, that they're actually listening to the word of God. It won't be ignored. But I wonder, believer, believer, we're often the quickest to ignore the word of God. Even though we hear what is being said, we are quick to cast it out as not applying to me. It's not important to me. They could have said, man, this is the king's responsibility. I don't want to mess with this at all. No, they heard the word and they realized that they could not let this go. That it meant something for them. It won't be ignored. I wonder in regard to our sin, how long do we think that we can pretend that God is not speaking or has not spoken to our sin. The word won't be ignored. It's going to complete God's work. It's going to move where God intends for it to move. It's going to convict when God brings the conviction by the work of the Holy Spirit. It won't be ignored, and it will get a response. Micaiah was the first to respond here. He takes the scroll seriously because of the claims it makes. It seems that all the officials have a similar response and they side with Jeremiah's prophetic words against the king. So this helps us to know that the king was not just surrounded by a bunch of yes men. They actually agreed that Jeremiah's words were legitimate. But they know that the king will be outraged by this. Their response further reveals what the work of the word is. Paul writes about this to the Corinthians. It will get a response. In God's wisdom, it pleased God to use the preaching of his word to save those who believe. 1 Corinthians 1.21. Paul describes how the word brings about, according to the will of God, the hardening of hearts and the softening of hearts through repentance. Every time the word of God is heard, there is a response. We don't get to walk away neutral. We don't get to walk away and say, well, I just didn't encounter God's word. No, every single time it is going to result in a hardening or a softening to him. You see these men, we we don't know their whole story, but it seems that the Holy Spirit is softening them to the word of God. It will do its work. But we also see it does more work in Jehoiakim. And that work is a response of pure and utter defiance. So the word endures to complete God's work. Thirdly, the word endures in the face of defiance. Verse 20. So they went into the court of the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. Then the king sent Jehudai to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and Jehudai 
read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. It was the ninth month. The king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehudiah read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in that fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all the words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Even when Elnathan and Deliah, Gemariah, urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch, the secretary, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. The word endures in the face of defiance. You see what's happening here. Jehoiakim does not like what is being read here. So as it says, three or four columns, he would listen and then he would take a knife. And this is a a pen knife. It's actually a, a knife that would be used to help create scrolls. If you're wondering, a scroll is about 10 inches wide, and it's usually about 30 feet long, and it would uh, be rolled up around like a a wooden um, pole. Uh, So he would take this pen knife, and every three or four columns, he would slice it off and then throw that piece of the scroll in the fire. This is a very calculated kind of move, isn't it? You wonder, like, if it doesn't mean anything at all, then why go to these great lengths? But I think it shows that ultimately, Jehoiakim's issue is not with Jeremiah. It's not with Jeremiah. Even though he wants to blame Jeremiah for this, ultimately, Jehoiakim is coming face to face with the word of God, and he absolutely hates it. shows you where the real struggle is taking place. There's a lot of application here, I think, but at the very least, believer, don't ever blame your issues with the word of God on the preacher of God's word. Don't blame your concerns with the word of God on the church, God's people. You must come face to face with the reality that God has spoken and you are accountable. It's nobody else's problem. And so Jehoiakim, face-to-face with God's word, no excuses available. I will not accept God's word. You know, there's no book that has endured attack after attack like the word of God throughout history. People have burned it. They have banned it. They have blasphemed it. But as Jesus says, scripture will not be broken. It won't be loosed. DeYoung writes here, it's Jesus' way of affirming that now the word of scripture, no, excuse me, no word of scripture can be falsified. No promise or threat can fall short of fulfillment. No statement can be found to be erroneous. The word endures in the face of defiance. And it seems as though as we read it here, the record points us to a comparison. 
Jehoiakim versus Josiah, his father. 2 Kings 22.11, Josiah discovered the book of the law. It's what led to a sense of revival in the land. And you know what happened? When Josiah the king discovered the book of the law, it says, 2 Kings 22.11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And we know what that means. That's an expression of being undone. That's an expression of repentance. Woe is me. That's the way Josiah responded. But we see right here, Jehoiakim did the opposite. What he did was take the knife to the word of God. But believers, we know that when it comes to scripture, it's all or none. We don't get to take the pen knife to it and redact the parts that we're uncomfortable with. We must reckon with the fact that our lives often fail to align with scripture. And instead of taking the knife to God's word, we allow the word of God to bring the knife to us. Verse 24 We see a a clever use of language. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. So Josiah, he tore his clothes in response to God's word. Jehoiakim, he would not respond. He would not tear his clothes. He would not rend his garments. He would not cut his clothes. The word is the very same. Jehoiakim refused to cut his clothes in repentance, but instead chose to cut God's word in rebellious defiance. Bregeman says here, the king imagines he has prevailed, but he has not, however, stayed through the completion of the narrative. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word is sharper than any two-edged sword. That it cuts to the very division of our soul and spirit. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see the, the reversal? The word of God is made to do this, but we think we can cut it up. Jehoiakim thinks he can cut it up and be done with it. Defiance. The word endures in the face of defiance. Fourthly, the word endures to reveal the living God. Verses 27 through 32. Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. Concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, Thus says the Lord, you have burned the scroll, saying, Why have you written in it? The king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut off from it man and beast. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day. 
and the frost by night. And I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I have pronounced against them. But they would not hear. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. So there's the first copy. The first copy is destroyed. And then there is a second copy made. It may recall uh, Exodus 32 and 34 when Moses, coming down from the mount, sees the people in their sin and destroys the tablet. And then he's instructed by God to create a new tablet. There is similarity here. Except in this case, it seems, and commentators think that the first scroll contained roughly the first 20 chapters of Jeremiah that we have read, that we've studied. Then the second copy contained another roughly five chapters. So it's as if God is saying, the pronouncements against you weren't enough. I'm going to give you another copy this time. It's going to have even more pronouncements of judgment against you, including the fact that you won't have somebody to succeed you. More judgments pronounced. You know, when it comes to the end for us, when we face the end of our lives, believer, unbeliever alike, how no matter how hard you fight against God's word, it will stand over you in judgment. It's not going anywhere. You can rid yourself of one copy and another one will take its place. You can cast off one sermon and another will find you. You can scratch out one line and others will still speak. You can disbelieve one testimony and there will always be another. The word endures. And Kidner writes here, going back to something I mentioned earlier, he says, behind the knife and the ashes of the burnt pages of the scroll, there appears to be an unacknowledged fear. Why take such drastic measures if you believe that the word of God ultimately means nothing for you? And we could turn to people in our day who devote their time and energy to combating God's word, to challenging the people of God, trying to deny the truths of scripture, who give their lives to figuratively cut and burn the Bible. There is judgment as the word speaks that stands over those. But on the other hand, through repentance, the word of God becomes a source of intervention. The word stands over us no longer in judgment, but by testifying to the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the word endures to reveal the living God, 
to reveal the living God. We're concluding here. The written word of God doesn't lead us simply to a place of spiritual enlightenment. It doesn't lead us simply to a place of a certain standard of living. It doesn't lead us to a place of realized potential. The written word leads us to the living word, the way, the truth, the life, the light of man, Jesus Christ himself. Every jot and tittle shows us Christ. Every prophecy reveals Christ. True repentance leaves Christ as the object of faith and the only hope of redemption. The word endures to show us Christ. By God's grace, the word was preserved, was preached faithfully. And those of you that believe, believe on the testimony of what was preached to you. Think about this as we conclude. 2,600 years ago, Baruch is standing in the court of the temple proclaiming the word of God as delivered through Jeremiah. 2,600 years ago. And now today, in 2021, we as the people of God sit under the teaching of the exact same word of God. The truths therein, the comforts therein, the things that induce fear therein. 2,600 years, that's not it. You know what we're going to be doing in the new creation? We're going to be gathering. We're going to be hearing the word of God in the new creation the gathered church, on its regular occasions, I'm convinced, a weekly basis. The church is going to gather and hear the word of God, the same words preached 2,600 years ago, the same words preached in 2021 in churches around the world. In the new creation, we will be hearing the same life-giving word of God. It is not going anywhere, no matter what we or anybody else tries to do. Unbeliever, maybe you need to reckon with that fact today. Repent and believe on Jesus, the one who shed his blood, the word in human flesh, the one who dwelt among us, the one who rose from the dead. Believe on him and have the assurance of salvation today. Let's pray.